And the time to start, if you're not living your dream, is right now. Start setting goals and setting out where you set in the course of your life and setting it all up so that you get somewhere in the future. When all that comes together, something happens called fulfillment. If you are not experiencing awesomeness in every aspect of your life, it's just from internal block or barrier disconnect that you've chosen to take on. Life is as easy or as hard as we want to make it. And I got my hands and my eyeballs and my heart around any information I could around holistic healing. And that led me down a never-ending rabbit hole of which I'm still spelunking into the depths of. I needed something like ayahuasca to really wake me up because I was very rigid and very stuck in my ways and very structured and controlling. And my first ayahuasca ceremony cracked my ego in a billion pieces. And uh, that's when I believe when when we really follow our deepest truth, when we really follow our soul, when we really follow our true calling, the universe rises to support us moment to moment to moment. Welcome to the Holistic Health and Human Potential Podcast. I am your host, Ronnie Landis. I'm an international speaker, author of multiple books, an integrative nutritionist, a transformation and embodiment coach, and simply a man who has devoted most of my life to the study, application, and integration of human potential. And it is my biggest inspiration to bring you weekly episodes that will expand your mind challenge your paradigm, deepen your heart, and help you to embody the greatest version of yourself as I believe you are meant to do something incredible with your life and this podcast exists simply to support you on that journey. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Holistic Human Optimization Show. I am your host, Ronnie Landis. And today we have an incredibly special episode. Um, As I was mentioning before we hit record, I don't think I've been this excited for an interview in quite some time. And that's a lot because I am pretty excited about almost every guest that I have on the show. But this one in particular is um, truly a hero of mine um, in the truth movement. Um, I'm actually just in full transparency. I have little butterflies going on in my system right now. Um, because I've been wanting to get this individual on for quite some time. About a year ago, I really dove into this man's work on his uh, podcast, The Unslaved Podcast. And um, this individual has been one of the premier leaders in what we call the truth movement. And, um, you know, just by the sound of that, for those who are not familiar with his work, you can kind of ascertain what that might mean, especially those who've been following my work. Um, All of you know that I'm very much into dispelling and demystifying some of the, 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 let's just say, the non-truths when it comes to the health world, some of the controversies in the medical allopathic world, just the, the, let's just say, the lies that we've been told that have been taking us on rabbit holes that essentially don't serve us and actually are a danger and a threat to our health. And more recently in the last year, I've really been going down the psychological rabbit hole and really looking at the psychic and metaphysical perspective of health at a deeper level. And I have to credit this individual's work for really not only opening my eyes, but giving me a framework that's been articulated and laid out that helped me understand how to um, bring a new level of my work into the world, which I've been doing. I've been writing a book called The Pathology of Fear um, over the last year. And um, as I told 
Michael Tessarian before we started the interview. It was actually inspired by an interview that he did on his podcast called The Sage and the Psychopath, which maybe we'll, we'll kind of brushstroke over that a little bit. But that particular interview affected me so deeply in the most powerful way, archetypically speaking, that it, it actually birthed an entire book that I'm now working on. And um, so, you know, it's an incredible pleasure to have you on, Michael. We're going to dive into your work. A lot of people that are listening to the show, a lot of them actually will be familiar with your work. There's a lot of cross kind of cross connection between our audiences, but then there's a lot of people that won't be familiar with your work. And I'd love to just start this interview off by having you share a little bit about your background, how you got into the work you do. And also like, how do you define your work? Because I don't want to define it for you. And it might be a little um, hard for some people if they're thinking of like more the conspiratorial ufology type of field of the, the quote unquote conspiracy field. I don't like that word. I, I like the truth movement because that really gets to the point of what you do. So I'd love for you to kind of share what is the work that you see yourself doing and, and how did it begin for you? Oh, thanks, Ronnie. Uh, glad to be on the show. I support your work a lot. Uh, what you're doing is fantastic. It's a key, key part of what I advocate. And uh, we're definitely going to have you on Unslaved in the, in the near future because this is a message that needs to get out, uh, especially with articulate people. It's a message that needs to get out. You know, uh, physical health is very important, but it needs a spiritual articulation, which you have, and the psychological. So, yeah, I'm really thrilled uh, to know about you and your work. Uh, as to myself, yeah, it's been a long journey of healing, both on a personal level and then uh, building that into the system. Now, of course, people may not know that that is, you know, because we don't often explicitly bring up that point. I, my focus is more on psychology and the psychological, but, it, but the whole point is it's psychosomatic. It, you know, it's not just psychological. It's, it's very much based in the whole concept of holistic health in regards uh, a direction. Because people, when people, how I would define it is like this. I know that, uh, well, first of all, let me answer your question in one sentence. Holy work. I define what I do as holy work, not in the theistic sense or any of that, but in the true uh, Aurovedic sense, in the true, uh, you know, Rudolf Steiner sense, whatever sense, you, in the true mystical sense. And I realize that because it is holy work, it's also holistic. And I know that anything holistic or homeopathic, it's a process in which you often get worse before you get better. That, that never leaves my mind, never has. And therefore, I don't associate it with any of the other paradigms of education or instruction, even physical instruction, right, or uh, college, you know, any, any of that. It's, it's not the same. It just simply isn't. It may resemble that, but it's so much different because its roots are, are in being and in improving you in all sorts of ways so that, you, you know, when you're journey up the mountain, you're going to see vistas more clearly. But the journey up the mountain also is difficult. The journey up the mountain is a lot of bruised knees, a lot of cuts. And as I said, the way I usually frame it for myself is that it is a homeopathic process. And all homeopathic doctors know that before you get the patient better, you know, they're going to get worse because it's a cold turkey. It's a, you know, withdrawal that's involved. Withdrawal from what? Well, the world, right? The, you know, the crowd, the mom and dad, the peers, you know. So any work that I do has this homeopathic sort of motto, very explicit, even though, you know, as you work it out in different programs and writings, it may not be so expli uh, explicit, but uh, David is the same way. Now, what does that mean? It means that I know that a lot of people who are working with the subject matter will go through these bouts, 
They'll go through this great enthusiasm and moments of inspiration, and then suddenly it lags. And then, they, they, in their word, they have to take a break, you know, and all of this. What it means is they're going back to the world. Mm-hmm. Or in some other way, they get confused, even, even quite borderline insane when you're into, you know, everyone ridicules us anyway for being sort of fringe and freaky and all of that. And to, a, to an extent, there's a certain truth there. But what I look at it is, is, the, is that withdrawal symptom. This is such a, a, you know, it's like heady oxygen of, of higher climbs. And sometimes you're not acclimatized to it and you will have this moment of breakdown in which you either retract and go back to the world as is, thinking that's a solution, or in some other way you get caught in some little, I don't know what, some little uh, cult thing that's happening or some like flat earth philosophy or some guru worship or, you know, the 101 ways that you can get snagged in this movement. So knowing that, I build into my work this premise that I know that you're going to have fall off and fall out. Mm. So I don't, I don't worry about it. I say, that's okay. That's an inevitable part of the system. So, you know, there's a different uh, um, comportment then that I have toward people. I know they can only take certain amount and then you're going to, you know, they're not going to be at the party anymore, even though they were real emphatic in the beginning. This is just, I don't think anybody else works like this. I do. I know that you're going to have these moments where you recoil from all of this because this information is, is actually has its own sort of presence, its own power, mm. its own uh, dynamic. And one of those reasons, right, now honing into the, you know, the level that you're speaking at, one of the reasons why is when you're down, let, let's put it in sort of Eastern mystical terms, when you're downloading higher levels of energy through the chakras, right, that doesn't mean I'm affiliating with I'm just using this as rhetorical metaphor. There's other ways of languaging this. But say you're downloading higher forms of energy. At some point, that's going to interfere with your body's toxicity. And when I say body, I'm talking in a very wider concept, you know, much more in the Wilhelm Reich mode. Mm. But I think people who are listening to this who have lots of familiarity with uh, these subjects, they know exactly what I'm talking about. There's blockages in the body. Reich called it armoring. There's other words for it. And so sometimes the condition of your body is one of these reasons why you recoil. Now, if we look around uh, at the world, it's unbelievable how with all the 40 years of pro-health programs and breakfast TV workouts and yogas and, and even then the, the flourishing of the, you know, the, the different movements, like New Age movement, they made health central. What do you see when you walk around the average mall or the average uh, shopping center? Unbelievably unwell, oversized people pouring sugar and pouring toxins and caffeine and uh, 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 to, you know, nicotine and all the rest of it, sugar being the number one killer, right? But we're including alcohol here in excess as well. So, And I've never seen it worse ever. I don't think a lot of other people have. Now, wait a minute. This is completely incongruent because there's even the mainstream has begged people to look after their health. Forget about any holistic voices at all. The mainstream has gone absolutely crazy emphasizing the bad health of children, right? The cholesterol, you know what I mean? The overeating, the the, the franchises. Hey, and yet people are more uh, unwell. And you see, I feel that this is going to uh, lead to problems because if your body is toxic, then your mind will be toxic and you will not have what, you know, uh, what I, what I uh, refer to in my work as the resources, the energetic bioenergetic resources. which damn well will be needed when you go on a spiritual path. So in other words, just like any car engine needs the octane, if you think that in a state of physical ill health, that you're going to even pass the first three, four grades of what, of what life will throw at you, what fate will throw at you, 
you're in a state of absolute delusion because it's not going to happen. Now, it doesn't mean there's not a grade and doesn't mean there's not exceptions to that rule. But in general, if most people are not physically fit, uh, and I don't mean some Herculean thing, I just mean, you know, in a good state of physical health, I don't personally see how spiritual progress can be made. I mean, and one, you know, I may be wrong. People can argue that point. But in my experience, you talked about the, you know, the long time I've had looking and, and seeing, and I've had ill health in my family. I've, you know, I've had, I've seen other friends suffer from this. I've seen other speakers within this movement. You wouldn't believe the stuff I've seen. So I am coming at it with some evidence here. And again, I reiterate that I don't think the two are disconnected. Real spiritual development, especially the, of the higher kind, when you're really serious, it's not going to just mean abstention from crowd consciousness or, you know, uh, um, Ortho, you know, orthodox knowledge or academic materialist atheistic philosophy. That's all part of it. But it's also going to be uh, your need to develop a yoga of your own mm. and a sort of um, a regimen of your own. And, you know, some of it you may cut and paste out of other people's work. You know, David, David Whitehead and I have talked a lot about this, you know, but I'm certainly in favor of Tai Chi, Qigong, the early exercises of, say, uh, you know, the Aikido, Another in the in the gentler way before you even maybe go up to a much more, you know, uh, advanced regimen. But one way or the other, you're going to have to take care of the physical body. Otherwise, watch out. You, there's no way to make emotional or intellectual progress uh, that's really substantial unless you're also factoring in the body at that point. So that's what yoga is for me. Is a, you know, they say the word means return, right? Mm. Reyoking. It's reyoking to what? It's the root of where the bioenergy comes from. But that energy can't just jump to the mind and help you in that intellectual way. It comes through the body. It is of the body. The body is the ultimate cauldron of that bioenergy, and therefore it, it needs to be reverenced. You know, uh, the body is 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 part of the divine, the, the great ultimate, the great spirit. You know, the world soul, whatever you want to call it. That body is part of. That's why I call it holy work, because there's no separation. And and the simple dynamic practical fact is if you want to make spiritual progress and you're not looking after the body, well, you won't make any. Very beautifully put. I mean, there's a number of um, things that come up for me from my experience being deep down the rabbit hole of, you know, what, what ended up happening for me just in a nutshell is I was raised as a martial artist from the age of four. Um, you know, my, my first mentor, my first male role model, because I didn't have a father in my life, was the iconography of Bruce Lee. Like my first conscious memory was of Enter the Dragon, no joke. Like that's the first thing I can remember. And it kind of imprinted this archetype of a superhero in real flesh and blood, something that showed the example that I could mold myself into my aspirations. I could transform myself and I can embody that kind of more noble, um, <clears throat> I guess, archetype of like what a real human, a human being superhero archetype could be. And that took me through my whole life in martial arts and athletics. And then I had knee injuries. And then all of a sudden I had an epiphany that, oh, well, the food that I'm eating, because I've lived on a processed food, basically a nutritional Holocaust, like most people. And so I started to make the connection that, okay, my, my knees aren't healing and somehow that must be tied to my lifestyle. So maybe if I change and I start exploring, like, what's organic food? What's whole foods? Like, what's all this? Because before, all I ate was food like byproducts. And then I started to educate myself on the agricultural industry, the factory farming thing. And I started to realize there's a deeper implication to not just my physical body, because I had a complete healing. I did, um, I did a raw food diet 
for 30 days, completely like no animal products, just like all living foods, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, juices. And after 30 days, I healed a seven year knee injury within 30 days. And I had the ultimate epiphany, which took me out of the athletic world and brought me into becoming an orator and a voice for this message. That's how I started my career. And um, my epiphany was that not only am I out of pain, but I actually had a moment where I forgot that I was ever in pain to begin with. It was like, it just dawned on me. I was like, there's no inflammation. There's no me icing my knees two, three times a day like I did for years. I actually forgot who I was because my identity had become that person that had a knee injury. So I had to adjust to that. But all of a sudden, it just completely vanished in in a new archetype, if you will, kind of like came through. And it became like a superhero for the health and wellness message to go out in the world and bring this message to people about healing their body. And, And, you know, you make some incredible points. One thing I wanted to make sure that I mentioned was one of the spiritual connections that I got between um, living foods and just our food in general was that um, I, I started to read Ayurveda a lot. And in the Upanishads, there's a phrase that the subtle energy of your food becomes your mind. The subtle energies of your food becomes your mind. So it's like, it's very interesting to really think about that because all these traditions, the Taoist tradition, um, Amazonian herbalism and shamanism and Ayurveda and all these great wisdom traditions. They didn't have Wikipedia. They didn't have health coaches and gurus and anything. They had wild food intuition. They had the, the forces of the elements to guide them, right? And so how did, they, how did they create this philosophy? They must have known something. They didn't have cancer. They didn't have all these, these full-blown epidemics that we have just kind of normalized to and just call like, oh, it's normal. Diabetes? Oh, it's just normal. It's just a genetic inheritance? Yeah, that's just it. And we just, we just normalized to it. And so what I, what I find really fascinating because, you know, you mentioned that the health thing, just like all these things, has to be guiding us in a particular direction, right? Like there has to be a spiritual direction to this. And that's really the message that I try to get across to people is that it's not about a diet. It's not about a particular um, uh, lifestyle per se. It's about how it affects you spiritually, how it affects you psychologically, right? Like if you you know, again, like if, if we're eating, for example, if we're eating like factory farm animals and there's adrenaline and fear pumped into those animals and every, every, every other thing that's going on there, doesn't it make sense that that's going to affect our consciousness? Doesn't that make sense that that's going to affect the decisions that we make? Like our world is very parasitical, as you obviously know. So doesn't it make sense that maybe these politicians like the politics Maybe there's like people are riddled with parasites and maybe if we got a colon hydrotherapist and a nutritionist into the White House, we'd have a completely different political system. I don't know. Well, it's needed. I mean, that, these are the ideals we have to set for ourselves and even on, as I say, a basic level. Uh, you know, in my consciousness, I don't really think about outside of this movement of, you know, the people who are trying to awaken. The masses will always be the masses. Right. And one has to, even though that's a horrible, you know, thing to envision on on the spiritual path you have to it, it, once you become wise and once you become really aware of the dividing line then you never include the horde i mean look just look at the state of them for goodness sake this isn't rocket science just go out and sit one day at a cafe and listen to the absolute shit that people are talking and then observe you know the toxicity of their life in a broader way like as you say the food and the the fluoride and the, the, the you know the the the, mercury, the lights the 
fluorescent lights and God knows what else. You know, I mean, just the products people put on their body after all the warnings. I mean, it just doesn't sink in. You know, uh, you can barely walk past people and, and uh, you know, when you pass by them, you can smell it. You can smell the toxins on their clothes, the washing powders that they're using, let alone the deodorants. You walk into an elevator and you nearly want to, and it's like, because of the shit that people are, are, you know, dousing themselves in. And there's no way to, so I've given up long ago, you know, ever worrying about that. But for the awakened person who's still, who is genuine and who can, you know, heed, something in them is still awakened enough to be able to heed. Somebody like myself want to say, hey, it's holy work. You know, that doesn't go through their one ear and the other going, I don't get that. No, they, they, they grab, it's a hook to hang your hat on. They go, yeah, yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. So if I was to say, oh, you know, what I'm really talking about is framed in the concept of self-sadism. Well, 89, 90% of the people have no clue what you're talking about because to them, all violence, you know, you're talking about animal cruelty, right? Let's go there for a minute. Uh, ecocide or animal cruelty is just one version of a form of violence that man excels at. But how many people know that the external form of violence is only a, 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 you know, a fraction of the violence that is existing, most of it being towards oneself? That falls on dead ears. I know it does. So I, again, my message, you know, is always to people who, again, can see sense in that and go, you know something, that's, an, that's a really key piece. Because then, you know, you're into a different gear and, and your process is made even easier because you're had themes now that really make sense. So to extrapolate just for a second on that point, if it is in fact true that most of the harm we do is to the self, self-harm, self-sadism, autophobia, all, all of the things that I, you know, make so central to my work, then your picture you know you're up periscope now to the, the world's problem is is infinitely greater than any doctor any lab guy any specialist and you're up there because because they don't know anything about this because they're the ones drenched in self-sadism their jobs their, their 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 work life their attitudes their materialism for instance would be one manifestation of this uh, and all the rest of it we can't explore that right but what we can say is that part of the wrong diet is a manifestation of self-sadism so when I said earlier that very little spiritual progress is going to be made, people immediately resist. I've made a lot of spiritual progress, you know, and I'm overweight or I'm, I'm, I don't do a lot of health. I don't believe it because for the simple fact that how can it's contradictory, isn't it? How can you both harm yourself and, and spiritualize yourself at the same time? It doesn't work since most harm is done towards the self and that's reflected in your diet. You're killing yourself or the, you know, the person who takes too much alcohol or et cetera, right? Don't have to draw pictures here. The person who is physically unhealthy is harming themselves it's it becomes then a complete contradiction to say but no no i'm making spiritual progress on the other side as well see i don't believe that rudolf steiner didn't believe that krishnamurti didn't believe that bruce lee didn't believe that now there are exceptions to that rule but those are so far and few between that in general for the rest for the rest of us you know and especially for the select group that wants to spiritually advance they do know you know that there's hidden hands of control upon you that stop you from doing that and they, and they know this, yeah, well, then there's a few other things they need to plug in. And what I'm also recommending is not some mecha mechanistic uh, forced mm -hmm. regimen. Mm -hmm. that's, 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 again, not going to happen, right? Yeah. I'm talking about a complete new relationship with your body and the ending of a self-sadistic relationship with oneself. Because everything in this world, even the politics that you know, people vote for and the leaders that they vote for, all of it, everything you could think of that is your experience is based in your relationship with yourself. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. And that's what I put fo you know, the focus on, actually. 
I, I, I love that perspective. And it's, I mean, it's so, it's so true. Just like as a, as someone who works with people, just to observe people, I, I like 90% of, of diet. I don't like the word cause it has die in it. I think it's part of a, a program. Um, it causes people to actually go through this, like this self mutilation process of just, um, we don't have to go into it, but just like, you know, getting themselves on one end of the spectrum and yo-yoing all the way over here. And they never find equilibrium. They never find what works for them because they're looking down they're they're barking up the wrong tree, so to speak. But, um, you know, th- that, that's so true because like when we just from the food perspective, I don't want to spend too much more time on it, but it's like, I look at it from like, you know, when I look at somebody's like lifestyle, how they, how they operate and organize their life and the behaviors in their life, it's like, how do you love yourself, right? Like if you, if you focus, if you have a priority on nourishing your body temple, cause it is a temple, like your body's not a junk food garbage bin. It's a temple. It's a holy temple. So everything that I eat has reverence. There's intention. There's, there's a sacrament to it, right? I'm feeding my holy temple. And a lot of times that means that I actually don't eat anything. That means I'm going to fast. Like all the great avatars and prophets and all the great people that we we revere in the spiritual world, like you said, we have all these kind of spiritual kind of, um, I guess, heroes. What is the one commonality between all of them? They all fasted. They all went through that, that alchemical metamorphic process of abstaining from food, abstaining from the world, like you said, and all the kind of booby traps. That's the word I like to use is like, these are just like really, these are booby traps. They went through an abstinence process. And I think one of the things that you're bringing up is a cognitive dissonance, right? Where people in particular fields of whether it's spirituality, new age, even the diet world is like running rampant is where people choose to only see what they want to see but there's, but, and then they get so hooked in. We call that dogma, right? That's just fundamentalism. And I'd, I'd like for you, there is something I want to bring up. Maybe, maybe we'll, you can tie all this in. I want to bring up the whole idea of selfhood and the murdered self of society and that tying to ancient trauma, because I think that's what we're talking about. The self-sabotage mechanism inside people that actually causes them to take on subtle death habits. I, that's that's what I think it is, and I'd love for you to expand on it. But I'd also like for you to kind of touch on this cognitive dissonance. Well, the cognitive dissonance comes out is is a reflection on the intellectual level of the dissonance below. When you're when your relationship with your body is uh, malignant, and all you know it is, it's just degrees of it, right? Uh, but when that when that's off kilter, especially in an extreme way, how can you express? You know, it's the point I was making. How can you have then? You're assuming that you're that your reason is operating and that you're lucid. You're not. Uh, uh, and at the same time, then we have a culture that in some bizarre twist of what we're talking about is in one sense, cult, uh, health mad, but you know, of course, underlined, not particularly the spiritual way. Look at the absolute nonsense on the infomercials and the selling of equipment and, and, and the pushing of diet pills and diet regimes so somebody go, but Michael, you know, that's all right. There's so you're talking as if it isn't. No, but you've got to discern the difference. That's another form of self-sadism. When you will yourself to do something for reasons that are not organic, it's another form of self-sadism. Overchecking your diet, keeping to a regimen, uh, always looking at yourself in the mirror and hating yourself and hating your body. You're not escaping self-sadism. Now the health re- regimen becomes the, another act of self-sadism. You see how the serpent is eating its tail? Which is then why I'm not out there uh, myself, you know, uh, doing that, advocating it in in the physical way, because I'm so wary. Since my theme is self sadism, 
you'd think, you know, you'd be right to know that I'm very wary of anything that re-brings it in in another form. You know, the, the Satan's at the door one more time. I got to pump it. I got to go. You know, I, I'm not I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. So this is a very fine line, which is why I draw that line between those who can get this and, as I said earlier, those who can't. So it is not about um, working out in this uh, way that the world appears to be on your side, not super lit, hyper uh, acquisitive. You know, it's another thing you want to attain, you know, and all this nonsense. No, you're letting your body guide you. You're ending self-satism. That's a much more sophisticated mystical process than just working out and losing a bit of weight. That ain't going to, you know, and that's why some of the fittest people I've known are some of the most pathological people because these little ingredients, you know, these little footnotes, they were missing in the whole process. So they've attained what they think is a model of physical health. Wow. A lot of people would love to attain that. But yet they're no more clear, clean, morally, you know, or emotionally than, than any of the people who are, you know, 300 pounds in weight. So one has to, to very much watch that as well. Uh, because there's built-in issues here. As I said, it's a spiritual holy work, so one has to very be very aware of it. But the cognitive distance on higher levels, right? You're reading the mysteries or you're trying to penetrate and become an inventor or you're trying to crack the, you know, how did the cosmos come in or you're heavily duty in gematria or whatever, and you're following these spiritual paths. Uh, and actually, because your relationship with the earth, your relationship with the world soul, which is the absolute, it's, it's the absolute uh, spirit, is manifested. In this world, and that can't just be dismissed by religious people. Oh, well, that's just pantheism. Well, then you explain to me what pantheism is, then, because if you did, you'd say it, it means nothing more than God is in everything. Spirit imbues the world. Well, why not? What's wrong with that? That's a beautiful concept. In fact, it's an incredibly rational concept. You see, but people in their daily life, and city dwelling is responsible for it, of course, and the kind of cities we have with the concrete and steel, the inorganic, they're cutting trees down every year, a process that's been going on for hundreds of years. Kids grow up where they never even hear the wind through a tree. I mean, there's things happening even imminently around us. Uh, more and more people are making their front gardens into you know, a place to park the car. They've cemented over it. They don't even know. They're not even conscious of their environment. They don't even know this stuff is happening, and yet it is. So the city is responsible, you know, the schooling and the parenting, you know, Steiner always used to take the kids out, you know, in their schools and make, make bring, bring them back to the earth, bring them back to the land. What is soil? Look at it, study it. You know, all of these growing cycles and seasonal cycles uh, that the trees go through these four cycles of, you know, of the seasons. You know, the, those kids were aware of it. Today, does every, does, how many kids know today in a state school that every single snowflake is an individual? What would they even do if they knew that? What, what, what does that inspire in them, a, a, a message of the cosmos, of the creator? Oh, what would it do if, you, if their minds were open and they were turned on in this way? But it's not. So back to the theme of self-sadism, once you've realized, and, I'm, and this is for anyone who realizes this, once you've honed in right on the fact that this hatred of oneself and this self-murder is the stone in the shoe that stops you climbing the mountain, well, then you seek about removing it. And it becomes your obsession, right? It becomes, that is the holy work. All the other stuff is sort of secondary to that. I've got, to, uh, and how can you even do it if you haven't noticed it in yourself? And how can you notice it in yourself if you're already uh, blindfolded and blinkered and heavy with, where your energy is not in the right place? Don't you have to be sharp as a, as a samurai sword to even be able to notice these things about your own consciousness? And your, you know, even if you grasp it intellectually. 
How is in everyday life? You may not, you may not be. So what does fate do? It makes you aware of it by bringing in a sadistic partner, bringing in or, or a, per, a person who's very self-hating in their own life that now is your partner or now is your boss or now is your confidant or even your child, for goodness sake. Fate is going to make sure it does its job by bringing these truths in. But wouldn't it be a lot better and a lot more economical if we had the right, you know, the, the sort of uh, discernment to notice it in, in ourselves how we do it? You know, the constant need for approval, the constant uh, influence of other people and their perspectives, you know, influencing our life and all of this stuff. So again, as I say, you're not going to be able to do that when your body's toxic. It's just as simple as there's no easier way to say it. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's an interesting point that you brought up. Um, trying to recapture it in my mind. Oh, yeah. So one, in one of your talks, you had mentioned something along the lines of the subconscious will will basically interact with reality, right? So if you have like kind of repressions, like unresolved shadows that we might call it, it will interact with reality and, and essentially manifest people's situations, circumstances to get you to get the unconscious to become conscious, in other words. And I think you just kind of mentioned that. I'd like for you to actually expand upon that a little bit because when you mentioned it, I knew exactly what you were talking about. I've studied Jungian psychology and, and a lot of the different ideas around it. And I've seen it in myself. I'm still working through them. So, but it gave me a framework so I could work through this without judgment, without guilt, without shame, because all that stuff comes up. is That comes up through the, the guilt complex and whatever, whatever we're working through emotionally. But it gave me a context for why certain situations, certain people, certain relationship patterns would keep showing up. And it gave me a way to actually work with it instead of repeating the patterns because I didn't know, I couldn't see why these things kept repeating. It took me out of victimhood, essentially. So I'd like for you to, to maybe expand upon that. Well, you actually hit the nail on the head because, uh, well, the first thing to understand is that the shadow, you know, when we say shadow, it looks singular, it looks like a noun. It's really better to think of it not as an individual entity, but as a realm or a room or an archive or a kind of a grotto, an attic, in which it means exactly what it says, that if I cast something into shadow in the room, right, I put that thing there, it's in shadow. And so what we've done is we've shifted a lot of uh, our own personality traits that other people don't like. So, you know, see, all that, all that new age guff about not blaming other people and, you know, it's all in yourself and all, you know, that's a lot of bull crap. It is other people because when we were a child and you didn't have any say in 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 uh, in uh, fabricating yourself in in, in the architect of of development, they did. The world did, and so the world taught you what what is not appropriate in yourself. So you threw it into shadow. So it's a realm with a lot of lost aspects of oneself. And then a time comes in one's life, you know, the great rites of passage, where you need to integrate some of those, not all, but some of those, and. But then that brings up the real psychology, which is to examine the shadow self and find out what parts are, should just remain there, and what parts are so scintillating that you put them there foolishly, and that's why you felt emaciated and naked in life. That's why always life, you felt out of sorts or not at home and not satisfied, no matter even if the, you know, the money was there and the, you know, all, all, of, all of the other things were going real well. You had the perfect wife, you had the perfect house, you had the perfect yacht, the perfect job, and yet you're still feeling very existentially you know, inadequate and impoverished. It's because this is when shadow work is required. But the analysis of shadow work in each individual's life of what is precious and needs to be reintegrated 
no Jungian school can teach you. In fact, this is the totally personalistic work. When we talked earlier about how hard some of this was, well, my goodness, the only person who can do that analysis is you. Because only you know what is truly valuable. And it's a purely an emotional, not a rational synergy. When you, when you discover that part of yourself, you're going you're gonna to know it needs to be reintegrated because there's, it's, it's totally visceral. There's nothing you can do about it intellectually. It's, a, it's an emotional thing. You know, it's kind of a love at first sight or whatever you want to, I don't know the metaphor, but this is how it's done. Now, none, none of our educational systems teach this, and even most of the psychologists get it wildly wrong. You, sh- you know, I've done another podcast on the shadow, sort of uh, debunking a lot of what these Debbie Fords and Deepak Chopras, you know, there's a whole school of misinterpretation out there. They get some pieces true, but they, they've got huge, huge misgivings. And the biggest misgiving is body work. So we're back to that. In my aspect, in my estimation, shadow work involves the body. It's, an, it's another word for awakening the body intelligence uh, as part of one's sensitization. See, so it involves a lot of different things. In order to get those things out of the shadow, I mean, that's a physical act. How am I going to get the sh- either turn the shadow down so that the light comes on or move them out of the shadow? How am I even going to do that? And see, this is where all the other people fall, you know, their, their methodologies are almost 99% inaccurate or useless, including the big, big names like Debbie Ford and Deepak Chopra and some of these other ones, right? These Marianne Williamson, whoever's, you know, there's so many things out there trying to deal with shadow work and it's pathetic. In fact, a lot of them haven't even understood the first point I made that if there's other people who are responsible for uh, cultivating this uh, in their sensor. You know, it's called the superego, but we don't need to go into that. The sensor by which you do the censoring action is is completely the result of the hectoring, you see, and the and the crowd consciousness. So yes, other people are responsible. You are responsible for turning it around, but that requires heroism, you know, which you alluded to, right? And will, right? You mentioned Bruce Lee and people like that. Uh, that's a whole. Then then your spiritual journey has begun. But I just want to focus in on this one point: is that now when you actually try to go into that attic and decide what is precious and what isn't. It's going to be a very emotional thing. And uh, it's going to require kind of sensitivity. So again, guess where this, how you're going to cultivate that? With a healthy body and mind. In fact, it's crucial. It's real shadow work includes the body sensitization because otherwise this process of shadow work, I think, fails. And I'll stick by that. I'm one of the only ones talking about this in the entire movement. Uh, and I've reconstrued, you know, using Wilhelm Reich and other people's uh, uh, contribution, you know, they didn't say what I'm saying in so many words, but in the, in the preponderance of what they're trying to talk about, uh, George Grodeck and, and even Karen Hornet and many others, it ties in completely with what the Taoists believe and what the, you know, the martial artists believe. And that is that, uh, so in other words, uh, if you're in your front room and you're, you're going to start embodying some of what we're talking about, it means that when you're doing your physical exercises or stretches or whatever it might be, now instead of doing it mechanistically for those other goals, now you understand it as shadow work. And that changes the whole center of gravity for you when you're doing this work because you now know it's spiritual work. So you don't need to be doing yogas. This is the yoga. You don't need to be doing meditations. This is the meditation. Then you're in a totally different world. It's not, oh, I'm doing this, you know, I, I like to exercise. What for? Well, I really don't know. It's just keep my body healthy, I guess, to live longer or what. No, that can all be thrown out or it's derivative, right? It's secondary. The real reason you're doing it is because it is spiritual holy work. That was implied in the martial art tradition. That was applied in Druidism. That was implied. Go and watch uh, 
certain films, you know, like Conan the Barbarian, and, all, and they'll show you that the pagan way was the physical aspect was a ritual. The whole movement of the sword, you know, or the sticks, or even dance, go to the Sufi tradition, go to these different traditions, and you'll see that the martial are arts. <laughs> you think they were just done, you know, as a pastime? This was a way for you to unite microcosm and macrocosm. But what has happened today is we've got the intellectual understanding of it, but we've failed to understand this uh, more primal understanding. You know, so my work tries to bring that back. So I hope that explains it. And again, people can come to the podcast, watch those uh, videos we've done on shadow work and psychology, and then they'll, they'll be able to unpack this a lot more uh, if it's new to them, you know, because it, it unites two things that are quite set different. But the sum result of it is, and this is a way that you can then judge it for yourself, whether it's working or not, is the reduction of self-sadism. That's how you're going to test it for yourself to see, what am I feeling? Forget these gurus and goals and all this other stuff. You know, Let's see it on a very visceral level, whether your relationship with yourself, which is the basis of everything else. Now, when we look at the malls and the shopping centers and we look at who's being voted in on power, as I said, my formula, my equation was your people's relationship with themselves is being reflected in their politics. This extra socialization, right? the, the rise of this, these bat crazy thugocracy and the socialists uh, is all based in one's individual relationship with oneself. And if it's toxic and unhealthy, you, you vote in unhealthy people who then want a culture of extremely overweight people who don't mind flaunting it, thinking that's an expression of them, of selfhood. They've totally twisted everything. Unheroic people with unheroic, you know, physiques is now made the norm. These socialists are absolutely knowing that they depend on it. They want unhealthy people. Because the new dogma, remember, even underlying this, is that whereas religion was previously the opium of the people and kept them in entrainment, kept them in a, uh, you know, a state of uh, entrainment, most of the new millennials know, know the error of religion. Uh, and that's the good part, right? That they, they know that those dogmas don't work anymore. So what did the big brother need? It needed a new dogma. And that's what socialism is. But one of the consequences of socialism isn't just to keep you entrained and mind-controlled. It's also to make sure that your vision of yourself is utterly warped and that your self-sadism ratings are skyrocketing. And if they do, then you will not be able to resist the McDonald's. You will not be able to resist the sugar. You will not be able to resist the caffeine and the alcohol and the, and, and, and the you know, or most, of course, the pharmaceutical medication or even the gossip or all the inauthentic modes. You won't be able to. You won't have the will. And so this is what you know, our work has to combat. And such brilliant points. I mean, it's so it's so well tied together. And, you know, it kind of makes me think about, you know, why is it so challenging for most people to change their lifestyle in the first place? Like most people don't think about that. And yes, there's the psychological piece, obviously, but then you put in the social acceptance piece. I know for me, when I went from whatever I was doing, I can't even remember, thank God, but whatever I was doing, I changed into getting more into vegetarianism and opening up opening up to like, I didn't even know vegetarians existed, believe it or not. Like prior to that, I thought it was some kind of myth or something. You know, I had no framework for it. But once I opened up to that, and I got on YouTube University, and I started exploring these things, I was like, wow, there's other people out there doing this, they're thriving, they're having incredible healing stories. Oh, my God, this must be the missing piece right now. So it opened up my frame of vision, it opened up my world. But you better believe there was a lot of like opposition. There was adversarial kind of energies 
from my family, from my coworkers at the time, from people that were on the standard American fare that were used to me being a certain way, going out to the bar, going out to, to um, do certain things that I all of a sudden, because I started cleaning up my, my body, all of a sudden my spirit awoke to a different level. And I became interested in different things. I became interested in a different path. And so that put me in conflict with the old self and all the people that had become um, comfortable with who I was to them. And then all of a sudden it started to shine a light on those people and their habits. Not because I was telling them, I was a little, I was a little, you know, you get excited when you start joining these things and you want to tell everyone about it. But um, I wasn't trying to change anyone necessarily, but just by me changing, it started to shine a light on some people and some people got the message and they were inspired by it. They didn't necessarily transform all the way, but they, they, they got in, they made, and it had benefits on their life and they made some changes. Some people completely disappeared. Some people tried to pull me down. Um, so just like with all of this work, whether it's through the, the nutritional piece, it's through um, the psychological, emotional, it's the, the truth movement as a whole, the work that you do. Um, I think it's very important and valuable for people to understand that when you change your course, when you reroute your course in life, there is going to be opposition. There is going to be some kind of adversarial um, force that happens. And it's a natural thing, of course. Like you're changing, you're, you're changing the, 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 the ecosphere of what, you know, your life has been and all the people involved. And you shine a light on, on, you know, just by you shining your light, so to speak, you're kind of shining a light on the incongruencies of other people's inauthenticities. And, um, you know, there's going to be there's going to be challenges. So I think that's a valuable point for people just to just to understand. It's a natural thing. It is a natural thing. And again, there's so much of the uh, we, we talked about some of the spiritual consequences of not doing this, right? Like you won't be doing the shadow work. You won't be making true spiritual progress. You won't be sensitizing yourself. All of that's going to lead to chaos in the spiritual realm. And then there's the political. Let us make no doubt about it, that this new group is voted in by people who have given up, abnegated, and who are deep self-hate. And they will then continue to uh, uh, rely on that they will have a message that is actually toxic to keep to, to you know to engender more and more toxicity now there's other sophisticated ways to look at this like my dragon mother you know if people go to dragonmother.org they can see two articles there the second one goes into regression a, a sort of a new slant on regression which includes a lot of what we're talking about by the way and it certainly shows you the political consequences of regression you know so it's filling out that word it's, it's giving a new sort of person uh, it's giving a new uh, vision of that word, but still very consistent with Freud and Jung as well, but giving a little bit different slant, but in modern context, so that we can immediately diagnose the things we see. This is important as well. But again, it all comes back to the way we treat ourselves. Now, we, we're living in cultures, you know, sadly, right, that don't want us to give meaning to our own lives, because that's what this is all about. The measure of doing any of this work that we're talking about will be the reduction of uh, the feeling of self-sadism which is the true enlightenment, and also a uh, a greater grasping of you know giving meaning to yourself. And and another way of saying that to make it even more concrete is you'll move from a recreational and vo and simply occupational existence, which is what most people are locked into, to a vocational. Now, you've already attained it. So your personal journey where you are, Ronnie, is, is indicative exactly of what I'm talking about. By finding your vocation, and that'll just continue to branch and blossom as you age, right? And you go 
you, you don't know what you'll be doing in 10 years, but you've already set the groundwork, you see. The soil, you've already opened that door. And so for other people as well, the, the deep sense of meaninglessness that they have is because they're caught in the recreational and the occupational. And, we, and that's fine. We need to be. You know, we need those things as well. But they're never feeling that they've reached their vocation, mm-hmm. you know, as whatever it could be. And even when maybe they, like I said, lick the window and find out, there's other drag factors that say, oh, no, you don't want that. And I've met a lot of people in my life like that where they have maybe six months or nine months of experience of something wonderful that, you know, somebody else saw on them, say, hey, you know, why don't I could open your door to this or that, you know? And and they go, this is amazing. I'm so glad they're crying tears about it and all, that they're so happy to be turned on to something. They never, like you said, when you were surfing, you, you found these incredible truths, right? Yeah, nine months later, they're like running a mile from it. So, you know, one had to study that incredible dichotomy and this weird contradiction. And that's when you come to the things we're talking about. It's all in somebody's psychology. There's a fear. You're, t- you're writing a book about fear. Fear, shame, guilt, all these comes into the picture. It's all shadow work because that person has seen a vision of themselves. I mean, this is incredible when you conceive of it. Like, say, in my life, if somebody held up a flame, a torch, and said, here's what you could be, I'm kissing their feet. I'm all ears, mate, right? Yeah, this is for me. Other people aren't like that. You, you know, whether they see a vision of themselves, one day it just comes to their mind. Great mathematician, a great inventor, a great social worker. You know, they have a vision of what they could do to change things. Or somebody else says, I see that. Don't you know you're a really good, uh, you know, you have a really mathematical geometric mind. Have you ever thought of being an architect or, uh, you know, what about sacred geometry? You know, you ever thought of being an artist? And they're looking at you going, no, I never thought of that. What's that all about? Right. So either it comes from somebody else, which often it does, or something you spontaneously work out. Why do people recoil from that? Why do they start it up and then they backtrack? Or like you say, in health regimens, we see this a lot as well. It's all because of the self-hate that is so deeply seated. See, you're conditioned for self-hate. I, you know, Remember you said about talking about the ancient trauma? Forget your ontogenetic life, you know, where you're programmed from your parents and the society and the schools and the, the, the peers and the media. This programming is millennia old. Now, granted, at the same time, 21st century is the process from that ancient catastrophe, that age of cataclysm, has been a process of healing, but it's by no means to be considered a, a, you know, a straight line, anything like a, efficacious. It's had major pitfalls. We're already on the precipice again to have the whole thing, all the development, all the uh, progress utterly implodes. We're right there now, believe it or not. And, and one can argue about, you know, what's happening in politics. We'll have to leave that for another time. The main trouble is that through this incredible process, if you know how to look at history and the, the, you know, the, the strengthening of the light and the darkening of the light of history, it's all been whether or not that wound, that terrible wound at the core of consciousness has been healed. And I believe me, there's been times when it, when it has, and then suddenly it's wide open again and guilt and shame and fear, you know, pour back. Those are the symptoms you see of this rotten tree of trauma that did indeed, as my work always shows, started you know thirteen thousand five hundred years ago with terrestrial cataclysm, which then you know had a, such a, an enormous effect on the human consciousness that uh, the real ancestral consciousness is no more. Uh, actually, technically speaking, the right brain, the right hemisphere of the brain, is the remnant, right, or or, or it preserves the remnant of that lost consciousness. By the way, so the right brain is by no means untraumatized. It's in no way perfect, but uh, it has tremendous problems, right? It's not, it's not 
golden, but it does preserve the remnants and the relics. The left brain is the super child, the super Horus, you know, the action man that said, I'm going to reform from the flames of this chaos, which is what the right brain is the relics. It's the debris. It's the shattered mandala. It's the old ancestral consciousness that is no more. Out of that came what we know as the left brain, which focuses on the world. And that's their, basically your ego consciousness right there. And the, you know, the, the relationship between the two hemispheres of the brain are very, very problematic. But the thing is that at least we do know one thing about the right brain. It is the remnant of this ancestral consciousness. You can't say that of the left brain. It's doing something different, right? It's, it's trying not to process any of that. The right brain is still stuck there and still uh, encapsulates all of that trauma. Uh, which is why therapy is often very, very difficult. And lots of false therapies, especially the New Age movement, have invented 101 false therapies uh, which don't actually go deep. You know, and, and in my work, I always bring out the, the shadow work teachers like Reich, Grodek, Yanov, and, and, uh, uh, you know, and others that do do the kind of work that we really need to get in touch with, the real shadow work, okay? My work is full of their references. So just, uh, again... To make it clear that although history has been a process of healing, and one has to see it as that and acknowledge great advances, at the same time, there are still enormous wounds, raw, you know, uh, very painful, just just back of our consciousness. Now, this is known. It's a form of PTSD, right? And it's a form of kindling, what the the modern doctors call kindling, which is. Trauma that's there, latent in the cells and nerves and meridians of the body, in the bone marrow, etc. It's right there in your being, but it never becomes conscious. You know, it, it's it's suppressed by the left brain, it's suppressed by the sympathetic system, but it's still there, burning away. So that's kind of what I'm talking about—a deep ancestral form of this that they don't acknowledge. Even the neuroscientists who know more than I could ever know about right and left brain. Unfortunately, they deny the spiritual aspect of the right brain. You'll never get them to admit, you know, what's, what's really going on, although they do toy with us a little bit. They, they concede a certain amount, but never enough, you know, as to what I've just said there. But once you embody this in your own mind, though, oh, things really, really become clear, meaning that this tension exists within yourself. You have two hemispheres of the brain. You've got the mind and the body, right? You've got the masculine and feminine polarities within yourself. You've got the will to action, to create, to strive, right, and finally get up to the vocational, and you've got the depressive, unheroic, withdrawal, apathy, I ain't got the energy, you know, I've got no heroes, you know, you've got, you, so we're schizoid, we're Jacqueline Hyde, and so the person, I've made it up, you know, for the last 20 years since I was shoved into this career, I've, I've said it from day one, there is no way that anyone can go out to the political platform, into that pigsty, and affect change if they're not clear, if they haven't done their shadow work. And this does mean the physical. But on the whole, the person who is not uh, psychosomatically pure will never be able to win to create better cultures and societies and political parties for the simple reason that evil wins every time. If you're not sensitized with discernment to know evil when it's smiling at you and comes in you know, the full light of day and says, hey, mate, I'll work with you. You're, you're, how can you ever affect change? So the person's consciousness, you see, has to be very, very discerning and pure. How can you possibly be that kind of Sherlock Holmes person? You know, without, without also being uh, uh, 
you know, in homeostasis physically. It's, I, I don't see how it can be done. It hasn't been done. That's the whole point. It hasn't. And there's so many, so many points that came up. One of them is, you know, what you le- what you led into, which is, which is an idea that I talk about quite often is this idea that you're, you're kind of gifted a glimpse of what you can become. And then that puts you in a, a particular position, right? It puts you in an interesting kind of um, peculiar position where you have to reconcile who you've been and who you currently are in order to actually, you know, ascend, so to speak, into the embodiment of what you can become. I, I always look at it from the perspective that the future is informing the present versus the linear perspective of like, oh, the past is informing the present, which indicates that it's just a re reoccurring pattern if i think of it that that way but what if my future self my future interdimensional um possibility like you know without going into like quantum physics and all that stuff what if there is an aspect of me that has already been through the journey and what if these insights and intuitions and instincts that help me navigate the journey, the morality, the moral compass, so to speak, that's trying to get me to live a congruent and authentic life and trying to pull me away from the distractions of the inauthentic world. What if that's actually an aspect of me in the future that's trying to communicate with me and show me what I can become and also show me the booby traps that it had to go through so I can, so I don't have to go through it and I can evolve beyond that that future self kind of an interesting conversation it's and if 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 anything it's an interesting kind of thought process for me personally because then that allows me to kind of tune back into magic right get out of this atheistic scientismic materialistic kind of frame of 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 reference for the world i live in like where everything's linear one plus one equals two etc etc and there's no real magic but to me that's a very magical perspective that my future self or the possibility for what i can become in other words the ideal is is communicating with me and it's giving me an opportunity to live up to my potential yeah it's beautiful that's exactly right and time is a key part of this. You know, I, in Path of the Fool pro series I did, we in cards six and seven, time became... I, I expressed it this way, and that is that uh, you won't inherit anything ideal, anything perfect, if you keep, you know, uh, if we keep uh, replaying the mistakes, right, or, uh, which was the past. So, but the past then becomes translucent when you realize that all those mistakes are there now to teach you how to not make them. I mean, this is it's brilliant. The past is a brilliant thing, even if it's, it's so filled with you know crime and injustice. Yeah, but it's the past. What more of a schoolroom do you need to teach you not to do it? So, history is the greatest schoolroom. But out of this dynamic, right, of the present and the past is the future. So, when we don't inherit. Anything good, anything perfect, and we're not. Look at our cultures and society. We, even with all the great geniuses, you know, before us, then there's something wrong in that dynamic, right? So you now, what you're talking about is a future, what's called prescience, a prescience. And I believe it. I believe it. I've even had experience of it. That there, there is a, a way that our self knows what's lying ahead, and we don't want to get into Anthony Peake and the Daemon, and the, this could be going on forever, right? I'm just keeping it real simple. There is something within us that kind of inexplicably knows what lies ahead and then there's a reverberation right people have prescience 
Now that can, and, and by the way, having it can work both negatively and positively, right? There's, there's two results of having this sort of future sight. But the positive aspect would be that some part of us is so conscious about, you know, making sure that our future works for us heroically, that we're super conscious of it. And I think it's a good thing. I think it should be taught to children to be aware that don't just have heroic thoughts and then let them, you know, like we said earlier, sort of fizzle and fade away because of the voices of other people or just your own laxity. No, be so, uh, be so uh, passionate about what it is that you want to see in the future that, damn it, it's going to be created. You know, Heidegger used a German language, which is translated into English as for the sake of. And that meant that it was future. It was all based on his future because future for Heidegger was the most important tense, right? And one of the other concepts he had, what humans do, and they do it completely invisibly to themselves, which is another bizarre thing one could talk about, but we won't have time to get into that now. But he mentioned this for the sake of, and therefore he said that the world and all the things around you are basically instruments, sometimes tools for the sake of, because I have wood and a hammer because I'm going to build a house, right? I have uh, my uh, friendships because these are people who think like me about whatever, right? So all of our, uh, our uh, thought is geared towards who we're going to be in the future. But you see, what I was saying earlier is that that has three components to it. You can either register it as a, on a recreational level or as on an occupational level. You know, you're seeing your future, but through what lens? The way to see the future is through the vocational lens. Because then your future and what you're going to build there is far greater. But doesn't that mean that your parents must then teach you heroes and put heroes in front of you? There is no way. Uh, okay, as I said, everything has its exceptions. And maybe on your own, like I did, you could find those heroic characters. I think you mentioned earlier that you'd been very inspired by Bruce Lee, right? So you, you find, you know, but not every kid is going to find the C.S. Lewis and, and the Professor Tolkien and, uh, and somebody to inspire them. It, it's getting less and it's getting more and more hard, uh, you know. In our age, actually, I think it was actually easier in the past where heroes were, you know, sort of louder and bigger, or whatever, right? Now, in fact, if you watch a lot of the children's programs today, the, the heroes, so called, are actually anti heroes. They're quite demonic. I wish we could explore that longer. Not all of them. There's some of them that look demonic are actually quite positive. But there's also uh, media outlets there, you know, that are putting in front of children very evil, demonic semi, you know, um, a sort of anti-hero heroic characters that the kids are taken for a year or so. I mean, there's a whole subject there. But healthy fam family always, you know, puts you in touch with people who have uh, done great things like Amundsen, you know, the great Norwegian explorer. I mean, the list goes on, Giordano Bruno, whatever, or, or a more contemporary figure, right? But we are now living in an anti-heroic culture. Remember I said that the political parties want you to feel that way because they know these mugs will vote for them then. The more unhealthy, the more toxic, the more self-hating, the more that you're going to project that out and vote for that kind of government until we're left with this monster monstrosity, this octopus that is so utterly unheroic that it destroys Western civilization, which is built on heroic patterns. So there's a tremendous statement here. But in your, when you describe time, uh, time is basically understood as desire, right? That, that's the first thing. We plant a seed in the present. The present is nothing more than the seed we plant of what we want to be tomorrow. And the tomorrow, the, what we call the future, is when we realize and, you know, and make good the seed that we planted now. So will is involved here. Desire is involved here. Delayed gratification is involved here. Uh, will to power. 
as Nietzsche pointed out, if in order to be what I want to be over there, I quickly find out that four horses on my carriage are better than one. Like minds are better than just mine. And if, if, they're, if, they're, if the things these four or five people desire is very, very similar to mine, it doesn't have to be identical, but similar, hey, I join with them. So now I've got crowd consciousness. But that can be as much a hindrance as it can be a good thing. So the individual or the outsider is faced constantly with these obstacles because he knows that he's doing what I'm saying. He's got a vocation. He's, he's, he's interested in building it. But he might turn off the road and think, yeah, but if, I'm with, if I get into political camaraderie with these guys, you know, and this happens in every aspect of our lives. And then there's a, even a higher rule that you can't do it on your own. You do need people. So it's like, oh, my God, what does the outsider do? One instinct tells him, fuck you all. I don't want anything to do with you. You're a bunch of losers. Even when I burn my cylinders out working with you and inspiring you, you know, you bastards, you're betrayers. But then another voice says, look how much I do get done when I've got an ally, a sincere person, you know, or a couple of buddies to help. You know, there's been great, great series showing this fact, you know, like Terry Nation Survivors and uh, Invaders, the, the great American series, sci-fi series which is entirely based on this whole concept of do I work alone or, 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 or you know, a couple of camaraderie, people, you know, is camaraderie the answer. So much to be said. And, and these themes come up today. What do we do? Do we fight back on the socialistic level by a barrage, look, a, 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 a terrific torrent of, of similar, you know, people and a great counterpunch? And that would mean, right, strength and people and, getting into the face with such powerful arguments that we destroy them? Is that what, or is it going to be, no, I just retract. I don't know what's going on in the world. I'm just forget about it. And I'm closing the door. I'm doing my yoga. I'm taking care of my kids. I'm walking my dog. I don't really care. If the world blows up, okay, it blows up. I'm little me. There's nothing I can do about it. Those are the extremes. Somewhere in the middle is the answer. You see? So I'm not an expert. I'm learning as I go. Anything that I'm teaching people, I've learned myself. And sometimes even in real time, you know? And then there's the work of decades that comes from, you know, stuff I've done in the 70s that I'm still an advocate of or in the early 90s, you know, so it's a combination of things. But uh, time is, is an unspeakable part of this. And again, in Path of the Fool, I refer people to, the, I think it was cards six and seven and a little bit of eight. We went into this thing and so deeply about the nature of time, how it connects even to your mother, you know, and delayed gratification and, 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 and so many other factors. Because remember, mother is connected to food. Mother is connected to nurture. Mother is connected to the stomach you know, to nurturement and, and your survival instincts and whether or not you have, she's taught you to delay gratification or not. Half the stuff we're talking about comes from the mother herself and her personality, whether she's like that, or at least her tuition to you, or it's, it's absolute failure. So there's a lot can be said even about the, the female psyche. I've gone into that in Dragon Mother. It's a key part of all of this. Whether a child grows up to be heroic or anti-heroic, it's going to mean life or death for the planet. This is this so brilliantly put in just on that note that you, it, cre it kind of creates a little segue, and I know we can't go too deep into too many things now, but it does bring up this whole sage and psychopath archetype because one thing that I really, um, I derived and extracted from that talk that you did, and I highly recommend everybody go to unslaved.com. Um, we'll also have that in the show notes for everybody. Um, one of the things that I extracted from that entire talk was this idea that the, the, the sage, the psychopath, the hero, the villain archetype in their maturation, they kind of parallel each other. They're more unique. They're more alike 
to one another than they are to like the commons to the to the to the masses and so kind of there's kind of this interesting dynamic tension between the two and they're almost like fascinated with each other because they represent the different side of the coin and they have to make moral decisions or they have to make decisions along the path and then at some point in the maturation there's like a destiny that's chosen there's like a fork in the road right where where there's essentially a responsibility that's taken or not taken in my that's what i interpreted from is that one chooses like batman for example i think that's one of the greatest or star wars i think those are one of the greatest kind of representations of this like where bruce wayne turns tragedy into meaning and he decides to take total responsibility for that into you into alchemize it into a way to help people and also to project his own the the darkness that he suffered onto those who prey upon uh other people right he used it in a in a in a positive way but then like where someone like the joker any other villain they may have been traumatized but instead of taking up the the mantle of meaning they decided to take meaninglessness nihilism and then they descended into chaos and then that creates kind of this like this kind of like split that's kind of what i took from it and i'm curious what what your perspective on on that is yeah, that that's a that that program. I think it was two hours, and that how much can you do on this vast subject in two hours? I like the way you said that they're connected. They are. I think that's mostly fate doing that. I don't think they themselves see any real, uh, you know, similarity. But I believe there's a higher. It's part of the mythos, right? It's part of the mythos. Uh, Jack meets you know the giant on the road, or meets the guy who sells him the beans. You know, the you're gonna you're, these roads are gonna run parallel. Like you say, Sherlock Holmes, Moriarty, right? Or, you know, Jadis and Aslan in the C.S. Lewis. This is going to, this is huge. I mean, this is one of the biggest themes of all, and it will never die away because it's archetypal. So even though individual uh, in, people might not find any, you know, similarity between one another, it's there all right. It's, it's implicit. And of course, in some sense, for a while, as the, the roads become parallel, they're sort of seeking the same goal. It is power of even the even the sage is looking for a kind of power. Let's not let's not deny that. It's that he finds out later on, sort of hint, just what I said a few minutes ago about he does he realizes the will to power, which is just a more raw political uh, base level exertion of the will, is really an abuse of the will. So he may use it. You may have to, like great coaches are very spiritual people, but they know how to kick your ass too. And they know how to use the will to power to get you know some discipline into your damn system. So they're using the will to power. So the sage learns how to use the will to power, but he transforms the will to power later on to the will to meaning. The, the psychopath never learns how to turn off, like you said, to turn off on that road. So they're similar to a point and the sage starts, starts to realize that the ingredients of the will to power aren't that wholesome, even though, my God, he can use them just as good as anyone else and all sorts of achievements can be made. He is a moral being, and I mean this in the highest ethical sense, right? In other words, his morality isn't just necessarily being done for the, you know, the approval of other people. Look what a great guy am I, this kind of thing. He's doing it because he's in touch with the divine spirit, right? He, he damn well knows that there's an afterlife in which you will be judged and things like that. He's working on a totally different frequency, right? And he, do, he doesn't want to hurt himself or hurt the spirit. I mean, it's a very deep thing. The psychopath doesn't believe in himself because he's self-sadistic. He doesn't believe in any spirit. So he doesn't believe in any afterlife in which you're going to meet your, you know, your, your, your crimes. 
He doesn't care about harming himself because the psychopathy is born out of harming himself. And he doesn't believe in any God who's going to surveil his actions and who might be, you know, uh, judging him in the afterlife. There's your differences. So it's incredible dynamic to look at, actually. Now, I would also go so far, I think I did in the program, to show that they do learn from each other, though. You know, in open court. Well, we know that because most of the psychopaths today, as we talk, are running to read books on psychopathy. Since there's so many books out there on it, don't you think the actual psychopath and narcissist isn't thumbing them every day to, to, to upgrade his uh, camouflage? You bet he is. And so, in my message, should the sage be studying the psychopath and the narcissist? You know, my psychic vampirism website is dedicated to that, right? And more will be said about it, you know, probably down the line. But that, that, that work is one of the older works. That's, that's a work that, that dates, you know, from uh, uh, 2003 when, you know, it started to form. And I did my first interview on it with a Canadian George Rideout in 2007, I think. And then, you know, it took a while after that to, to make the program. But it, that's been a, an ongoing unfolding of this very thing. And Sajin Psychopath was pretty much the next installment, a really good program we got a chance to do. But my God, the similarities are unbelievable. And you can learn from both. Just like the psychopath is now learning in real time from, the, you know, the books on that have been written by sages to say, heal from a trauma or heal from narcissistic abuse. Who do you think is reading those books? Who do you think is most fascinated with them? Who's trying to upgrade their toolkit? So that they can, it's all about camouflage in the first place. The psychopath can't exist without being the wolf in sheep's clothing. He knows that better than you do. And he's always ready for an upgrade. The sage must then turn and say, I I just study evil all day long. Know thyself, know thine enemy. Yeah, know thine enemy and what weapons they're using. There can be no victory without it. Even if you only gain a certain amount of knowledge, that knowledge is priceless because, as I say, it will also assist you in the shadow work of discerning what is within yourself that is truly something that should stay in shadow or something that can be let go on parole. The beautiful, sophisticated aspects of yourself that mommy and daddy didn't like, the high discernment that you buried, the incredible questioning and criticalness and the lack of hypocrisy, but they taught you to be hypocrites. And all of that, you have to go through that. That is spirituality. You've got to go through that and say, I'm going to redeem that. Well, you, a lot of that is done through physical movement because your memories will come out of your very system, out of your fibers. Right? Memory isn't just something in the brain. Memory is something in the very fibers of one's being, in the meridians, in the cells. It's cellular memory. It even goes deeper than that. Like I said, this kindling right, that, that, that is housed in the right brain. Every single traumatic memory, not just of this life, but of the past, but let's just focus on this life, is contained in the right, right brain. That's one thing the, neuro, the neuroscientists do acknowledge and acknowledge very strongly and rightly, that in your right brain is the memory of every single trauma or bruise you know, to your ego that happened. And so a kind of therapy is no therapy if, if it's not awakening that. But you can auto-do it by conscious yoga methods. But as I said in the very beginning, once you do it, there'll be a need to retract and recoil. You won't have the will because these memories will have a dual effect. The promise of enlightenment and freedom and uh, I'm free of it. The chain is broken. No pop bugger has power over me because that, that, that trauma was caused by the people. Wasn't it? What are you talking about? You got it all upside down. Of course I blame them. Of course I, just, I, I point them out. It's rational to do so. Then I have other work to do, which is to heal myself. Yeah, but don't, don't, don't try to conflate the two. I know who the guilty ones are. 
and I'm not going to let their effects on my being ruin my being, ruin my future. You see? So this is the dynamic. Forgiving evil. Who gave you the right to do that? And in forgiving evil, you do nothing but perpetrate it. It's just to let off that evil needs. So body work, you know, involves this. And that is the real shadow work that when we use these metaphors about, you know, things cast into a shade, it's just metaphor. But what it is, is it's a metaphor. You know what the shadow is? Your body. Now we can make it really explicit. The shadow is the body in this bioenergetic sense of the fibers and the marrow and the, the meridians, like in, 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 in the, uh, like I say, the Aurovedic or the, the Taoist sense, in those meridians of your being, in the, in the chakras, if you want to use the Vedic way of talking about it, but just literally in the fibers of your being, as well as the brain, is contained all of this trauma. And then when you start the process of bringing it out, unfortunately, there is this uh, dualistic effect where you can be, uh, I guess it is like going on a diet or a fast, that, you know, or, or, or not wanting to go down to the gym or whatever it is, you know, it's sort of like that. You have a resistance to the light in that sense. And that's why now a new kind of intelligence, just like the muscle memory or the will, now will be developed in the spiritual person where he is very familiar with what I'm talking about and knows how to negotiate those resistances. You see, so now you're already upgrading, as I say, climbing the mountain. You've got tools now that the average Joe doesn't know anything about and probably never will. And those people are not only looking for approval for everybody else, they are obsessed with it so when you talk about sage and psychopath where they really part company is that whereas the sage is, is very open-minded more uh spontaneous and able to change right like in the movie dune they show that at the end where he's able to flip over and change and be mutable the psychopath's orientation and his compass is fixed he's in quicksand spiritually speaking because he's by negating the afterlife by negating the spirit he is incarcerated in the five senses reality, which isn't that fluid, actually. And therefore, the will to power is his only octane. It's the only oil that you know moves his cogs. There isn't any other, because the only other thing is, like the sage has learned, the will to meaning. But the sage has no will to meaning. All he does is wants the whole world and everybody in it to serve him, to be at his feet. Not for their welfare. The sage wants people to serve him too, but that's part of the process of denuding the person's ego so, you know, so that they can take the discipline to understand their vocation. He's rising you up out of servitude, not of slavery. But it might start where you know, there's a few tests involved. The sage, no, he just wants you on your knees 100% permanently. He's the boss. He'll tell you what it's all about. And as I've said in work before, that kind of hedonic person does gravitate to places where you give orders, like the military. Right, like government, like the like religion, the church. That's not to deface any of those three things in themselves. But some people gravitate to going into those who are pathological. It right? doesn't mean that the military is itself pathological, which some of the leftist people try to, you know, that's part of their whole uh, reaction. No, it's individuals who, being pathological, gravitate towards those jobs and offices because they can now, you know, easily uh, do what I said, which is. Uh, have people serve them hand and foot without question and that they can give orders and they can exercise their will to power. So that's a whole question of, you know, if we need to revise those, yeah, well, I think Western civilization will get to the point of revising all of these problems on our own without any need from KGB central. So the thing is that in ordinary spiritual life, it's the same dynamic. The person is in, encounters every single day, this challenge of whether I will just, 
I hate the, and even the people I, I've helped, they betray me. It's, I'm just, I'm committing to the will to power, to hell with it. You see, and then you, you fall back into this raw will to power methodology. And so many people do. And, and, and that's what you're basically getting in the, in when you see in people's faces today and the kind of dynamic that you see, which is dog eat dog, you know, uh, and all of that. And, and you see this, you see this in people's road rage. You see it in the extraordinary rise of suicide and, and homicide. Suicide being the interjected version of what I'm talking about. Take everything I've said and then say, violence directed to the self is the chronic rates of suicide. And if I'm not doing that, I'm, I'm beating on somebody else, right? The whole, the whole uh, passive aggression aspect of it, you know, uh, is involved in all of these things we're saying. But then there's the other side, which is the transformation, which only the few will ever be able to do, which is the, the sort of shifting gears up to the will to meaning, which subsumes. It doesn't mean you stop acting, you know, in the other ways, but those are now derivative. They're being guided by a higher navigator, right? The navigator's thrown out the old maps and said, did you know you were going towards a crevasse? You got to steer over here towards this, you know, the North Star or whatever. And then all of the other lower parts, this was brought up by Plato, Aristotle, and all, all of those are healthier. Because now you've, you're, not, you're not doing something for the will to power. Like I compete, they say that you're going to be fitter, you know, so I'm going to go jogging, I hate to do it, but I'm going to, it's not all born out of that. It's born out of the will to meaning. And that's all the difference. That's what really stops health issues. See, that's why these people who claim to be very healthy still drop dead after a certain while or have major, major problems with the bone marrow and joints and whatever. The whole thing is intention, for goodness sake. But you know that simple truism, how few people know it? If you're doing something with the right intention, oh, now miracles happen. Now you're able to do things of unbelievable magnitude that you wouldn't even believe that you could do yourself. And then no force on earth. And all those other voices you spoke about, you see, try to hold you down. No, it's just like, okay, you go your way, I go mine. And there's that you know, moment of separation between the sage and the psychopath. But the difference is this also, that even ultimately the psychopath is studying the sage. I say this on the Psychic Vampirism website, that they're really walking in rhythm with you is the term I use. Walking in rhythm with you like a predator to see what your scent is. And you're oblivious, you're just walking along like, you know, you, you don't know what's going on until they wipe you out. But the thing is that, Taken to its extreme, the psychopath really doesn't have a lot of knowledge of the sage. The sage's real nature is shrouded, you know, if you really want to come down to the, the facts of it. Whereas the sage who has studied evil, evil is known to him. That's enlightenment. So the sage, the psychopath is always going to find himself in the first grade. He's always going to be marked down. Whereas the sage has a knowledge of his own, of the true wisdom. Right? Trump River. But he also knows completely the nature of evil. It can't checkmate him anymore. It cannot do that. It cannot uh, hide its true nature. You know, so my work has been entirely based on, as you well know from the start, about study evil, study it, study the weapons they're using, brush up on that. It's deconstructive work. But my goodness, how much more vocational and spiritual wisdom you will have at the end of it. Hmm. Indeed. Yeah, I... Um I mean, one of the things, the, the, the word that you've used many times that, that is really in my mind right now is psychic immunity. And it's like, how can you possibly, how can you inoculate yourself if you don't even know what you're inoculating against? You know, it's like, I'm not going to go into the whole vaccine thing, but like, that's a representation of that, that, that particular energy in my world, right? And what manifests that in Monsanto and GMO foods and the whole, that whole particular 
if you want to call it an archetype or an archetypical representation in my world, that is the adversarial opposing force that is, is evil. Like what else are you going to call it? Like we can't sugarcoat it. Like that is the, that is the vehicle of evil in this particular framework, in my particular world, in your world, you have, and that's what I, and that's also just on a side note, that's what I love about bringing people like yourself together is that we can facilitate all the pieces of a much bigger puzzle. So we don't get too locked into just what our work is like our own kind of myopic focus of like, okay, I'm doing the health and nutrition and healing thing. And then this is, these are the pieces that I work with. It's no more compartmentalizing, right? Like it's now it's like, we need to know the full picture of good and evil so we can navigate in the world because it's going to show up in all different, all different ways, right? Like just in the, in the way that we navigate, our life and in the world and to be able to have these conversations is really powerful. And I love, and that's why I was so attracted to your work because, you know, being in the, the spiritual metaphysical new age type of communities and navigating through that and really starting to, as I awoke and got more kind of um, solid and integrated within myself and started studying, um, you know, rock solid psychology I started to notice, you know, there's a lot of people that are very um, one seasonal that are very hyper positive. And in, at first glance, it seems like a very like uplifting thing. Like, wow, so many positive people, so many optimistic people. But then when you start to get to know people and, you know, triggers and different things start to come up out of nowhere. And I, I started to think to myself, like, wait a minute, this wasn't happening to me out when before I had my kind of my spiritual awakening and my, my, this, this new road, like even in that world of processed food and, and like, repressed trauma like my family we weren't dealing with this level of like like spontaneous triggering or one seasonality turning into like a total nightmare um you know it's like it's very fascinating so like one of the things that you talk about a lot is like the the plight of the new age kind of um or demystifying the new age world not to say that it's all it's all once all one way there's 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 benefits and drawbacks but i i love about i love what you how you kind of articulated and, and kind of just open, open a bigger picture for people. Um, because I had to learn that the hard way, you know, I had to really start to see the drawbacks of not integrating psychology into kind of these like so-called spiritual or nebulous. Um, um, I don't even know what the word is, you know what I'm talking about, but like, so anyways, just to tie that thought together, the psychic immunity, how we can't really, um, we can't inoculate ourselves psychically if we don't even know what's in front of us, right? We don't even know what the challenges are. We don't, because we're living over here where we don't want to look at it. It's like, no, evil doesn't exist. The more I focus on it, the more I look at it, I'm feeding it, I'm giving energy. But all the while you have, it's, it's parasitizing you. And it's actually how a parasite works is it tries to hijack your consciousness and reroute your, your mind in, in a distracting direction so you don't see it so the immune system doesn't see it so you can't see it so it can do its thing and then before you know it you know you're done yeah that's why evil wins a lot of the time because a lot of the things that we do to facilitate it are non-conscious you know and that's where the immunity is built just like in a physical immunity you build it and it's a deconstructive by getting shadow work is getting rid of that shame getting rid of that guilt getting rid of that fear you know, and then you feel lighter because of it. See, the sage, another difference between the sage and the psychopath is that as the sage does progress, and believe me, his hurdles are infinitely greater than the psychopath. Psychopathy is avoiding all of those awakening of the wound and awakening of the trauma, right? He gets other people to do his bidding. 
the sage's journey after he's gone through these obstacles is to get wiser and smarter and more light. The psychopath gets dumber and dumber and dumber and more dirty and stained as he goes. So it's, it's really the ultimate diagnosis is in the end of their road. You know, it's, it sounds in a way sort of anticlimactical to say that, oh, I got to wait for the end. Well, well, I didn't invent that. That's fate, mate. You know, you could be living with somebody all your life uh, in your family that doesn't show their traits until they're, they're now given power. What happens when that brother that you just thought was absolutely wonderful, right? But now he's given the reins of power in a company or a business or in a, some other situation where, you know, you're dependent on him and he's made all these promises. And suddenly he, he completely capitulates, becomes an alcoholic or sells it out or in some other way, you know, reneges on, on what was said. Uh, and, and, or a mother or, you know, another colleague down the line showing that now that they've you know, suited up, they, they, they capitulate. And even in yourself, you're going to be faced with those challenges, you see? So it, it's, but as I said, the sage becomes a sage mostly, <laughs> you know, when he attain, you're talking about the future and the, and the importance of it. Yeah. In the future is really where that, that, your, that, uh, uh, attainment is there. But you have the future as a mental concept in your head. And it's extremely important that you do because many of the great uh, troubles with teens, right? The, the, their depressions, their suicidalness and all is because one part of their psychology that Freud called the ego ideal isn't functioning properly. And that is directly related to parents. So again, this bullshit that tells you that nobody else is responsible but for yourself is so vapid and so disgusting a lie because the programming that led your ego ideal to fuse is in directly connected to the parents and the upbringing and also of the wider family. And then again, of the wider community, if it's functioning, then in a person who's gone through living hell, even as a teen or a youngster, but because this ego ideal is working and they can, you know, like I said, find a CS Lewis or whoever, right? Somebody that's inspiring them, a Khalil Gabran or whatever, right? Or again, a more modern figure. Those people can go through the same quagmire, but still retain the wings to fly, you know, to the mountain peak. So this thing starts in parenting. Uh, you know, I've dealt with the male psychology, the female psychology, the child psychology. It's all, it's, it's all definitely uh, deeply involved in all of that. But the premise is that the psycho, uh, the, sorry, the psychopath is of the opinion there is no spiritual path to be walking, so he doesn't walk it. His psychology: is, What are you talking about? Spiritual path? I just got to get rich, powerful, right? It's dog eat dog. The sage is saying, eh, yeah, I've gone through all of that. You know, it's like Immanuel Kant said, I know that what I know is right. You know, the German philosopher, I know that morality and ethics is true because after the evil man is lying in his bed at the end of his day, ready to die, he'd sell everything, all his ill-gotten gains, if he could bring him into that room, he'd, he, he, he envies the moral man whose conscience is clear. What greater proof, Kant said, and granted he said it was very unintellectual, it's a very practical phenomenological, observable, empirical fact. But all sorts of things, you know, come out of this. Because obviously, the good man, the sage, doesn't envy the evil man at the end of their lives, but the evil man does envy the moral man. What does that tell you? That evil is, is a lie, and evil is fallacious. And even if the person, they're stained with the dirt and the memory of what they know that they've done all through their life is rotten, wouldn't that evil man now give all his ill-gotten gains to have that pure heart? Right, then you tell me, society, what freaking better proof do you need than that? Such a simple thing and yet so true and real and, and pragmatic. You're always acting for empirical evidence. And then when I hand it to you, you know, nobody accepts it. Well, then, then, then the ball's in your court, mate. Don't accept it. Fine. But don't claim that the evidence isn't there. 
The evidence is absolutely there for the, for the ver veracity of uh, the ethical life. And part of, as we're talking about in our conversation, part of that ethical life, right, most of it stretches to the deeds you do for other people. Yeah, what about the deeds you do to yourself? See, my focus has not been in my whole work, the deeds. That's why I don't have any political message in, in, that, in that sense. Right? I, I have political thoughts and messages, but not in this sense. Because I know that you won't get to those. Nobody can implement any of that unless they first have a relationship with themselves that is ethical, that is moral. And do you know how many people teach that? Zilch. We got an awaken, you know, they're calling it what? The truth moving on. One day, maybe when the meter, you know, turn the, you know, you're spinning your wheels in the, in the, in the gutter. It's a human being, the premise one. Know thyself. They couldn't make it any easier. I mean, it's just two words. Does anybody ever bother with what it means? No, they're following some guru or some ideal or some path. So that's what psychology is based in psychology, the psyche, right? The logos, the way, the structure, the understanding of the psyche, philosophy, the love of wisdom, right? But it's all implying emotion. It's all implying a journey. Now, as I said, the psychopath isn't on that journey. So you're dealing with a real weird species when you study psychopaths, even if it's just your common and garden one or something, you know, far more powerful. But you're dealing with a very unusual species that in many ways is in quagmire spiritually. You know, and, I, and on the Psychic Vampirism website, I talk about ways to test for it. You know, uh, and there are ways you can test for it. But you won't be able to test for it, no matter how many, you know, bullet points somebody like me gives you, if your own sensitivity and your own intuition is dead. So there's, there's layers and layers to this, right? But I'm talking about a sensitized, sensitized person who's learning how to speak to themselves and with themselves, who's listening to their body, aware of the moods that they're in. You know, the mood is very important uh, when people come in and out of your life. Because so much, uh, if you, you know, just this point is very important to make, for those people who've been surfing the net about narcissism and psychopathy, you will agree, right, that you keep hearing the advocates and the teachers keep on telling you not to have what they call negative people around you. Now, what these fools don't realize is that this, is, this leads you nowhere. Because there are many very negative people, as you might at one point think it, and yet they could be very wise people. So the message that most of these people are handing out is actually very dangerous in many ways. This is not about censoring what you consider to be slightly depressive or pessimistic or just sort of a little bit more introverted people. That's what it's becoming in this movement. I see, I've already saw that years ago, and by God, it is continuing. Well, uh, So what do you tell me? I have to have these bright, narcissistic people that you just described yourself, you know, that come across real cool and everything's fine, and then, you know, you, you meet them and there's never any problem. It's the one-season world. So these people who have video after video of video after video teaching these subjects of psychic vampirism and narcissism, I've got it all wrong. Yeah, you don't want the psychic vampirism around, but the psychic, all the psychic vampires, vampires I've ever met, and I've met at least seven of them, these people don't have a shadow of darkness. They have no bullet holes, Ronnie. They're bright, breezy, effervescent, glowing, graceful, acculturated, doing well. Everything's a breeze. It's a birthday every day. What are these other imbeciles talking about? On the net. It, it, you see what I'm saying? You got to see it. Oh, wow. So what I'm happening now is a bunch of narcissists are teaching other narcissists, yeah, I'm going to keep that person away from me because they're really negative. And then you define, well, in what way negative? Well, they're, they're poor. They're always telling me they have no money and the, their job sucks. 
That's your definition of why you didn't have that person around? What is going on here? Absolute nonsense, meaning that there's a censorship being done, you see, to people who are real, the sages, in other words, who have bullet holes, who are a bit dark, who often are negative because they're, they're, they're in the world, they're in the thing called reality. And reality has a lot of, you know, it causes a lot of bruises. It's the same thing with these socialist governments. They want toxic people who are so utterly, uh, like I said, self-sadistic, either at the beginning or at any given point. What happens? You alluded to it earlier. The bad diet and the pharmaceuticals enter in at this point because the more and more uh, this vicious cycle between the voter and the socialistic type of government who keeps them ill health, the more and more that voter is starting to feel uncomfortable in their own life. We've already said they are uncomfortable, but like I said, the sage's road is towards light. The psychopath is towards death and decay. So in this person who's already self-sadistic, it gets worse and worse and worse. So as they vote for their illustrious leaders that they think is going to change the world to a vision of paradise, they are getting more and more deranged and more and more toxic every day. Who do you think comes in to solve that problem? Well, we already know. It's big pharma. So on top of all of the other things about your foods you know, and your consciousness, big pharma goes in to say, we know that the um, feeling of uh, existential right, crisis in your life and toxicity is even deeper in just the passage of the last 10 years. We've got to make sure that you're on this medication. So as we know in, from the reports, the records of people taking this, even at different ages, you know, is it escalating? It's, it's absolutely incredible. It's, it's just, it's absolutely skyrocketing, both in England, Britain, you know, and also in America. And then the illicit drugs like meth, same thing, 40% up, 40%. Up. The police can't handle it. That is exactly the evil that I say needs to be studied. But you can't study it and come up with political solutions. They're psychological. They're always psychological and about how somebody is avoiding giving meaning to their own life. Psychic evasion coupled with psychic uh, self-sadism and all the rest of it, the autophobia, the stuff I deal with you know, in my work. Then when you've understood these principles and precepts, it's for you you know, then to go on like you're doing and then say, hey, uh, for me, I want to, you know, this will mean this. And for, the, for, for another person to say, it'll mean that. This is not a one-size-fits-all Michael Sarian, you know, spinner rack book. This is a, a, a journey of, of discovery, you know, and it does have those goals at the end. Wisdom, yeah. Respect for spirit, because you would not want to harm spirit by your immoral acts once you understand the whole dynamic. The evil man doesn't care. He doesn't believe in a spirit, doesn't believe in his own being. In fact, that's probably the key. His, his real psychopathy is born out of his own self-sadism. It's born out of his own poor Negative relationship with himself. God need not even be involved in the matter. Spirit or the universe or the culture or, like you said, animals and their welfare. The man who's dead to himself, who secretly hates himself, even when he's got that big Prozac grin on his face, or he gets his high from kicking other people around, so he's always in a good mood. Of course the vampire is in a good mood. They're sucking you dry. They're dumping all their negative energy into your field. Of course they look great. Of course they're always happy in the middle of chaos. That's not spiritual. These dumbasses making these videos and trying to make you, you know, think that it is. I'm not going to have any negative people around me who make pull me down. You haven't even got on the first level yet of understanding what's going on. The happiest people you know are more likely to be the vampiristic people because they ain't got no problems. They've dumped all of their psychic energy onto you and other people before you. That's why they you want to be around them because they feel very effervescent and untouched by the the you know the problems of the world. Wake up. 
I mean, that's that's so key. That's so key to this. And I, I think there's a difference between optimism and, and perpetual happiness. Happiness is an emotion. It's transitory, just like everything else. There's a full spectrum of human emotion. I talk about that a lot, that we have to be willing. We have to be spectrum specialists instead of just focus on one little color on the color wheel, right? We have to encompass the full human experience. And one thing that came to my mind, you know, when you're talking about like this, like one seasonality, hyper happiness, that's the only emotion we want to feel, or at least that's, that's the projected image is that, you know, for people that are listening to this and some people that like, this may be new, this may be totally new perspectives to you. And you may be like, whoa, okay. Like this is resonating, but this is like, this is pretty full on. One thing I want to say as a warrior growing up, in the kind of like Bushido kind of culture, um, you know, in the samurai kind of tenants that, that's, that, that was really like kind of my, my North star, my, my moral compass, because I didn't have that kind of familial traditional upbringing of a father to take me through rites of passage. Thank God for martial arts that took me through. And that's my, that was my fate and my destiny. I'm so happy for it. And one of the things that I get from that and I get from this is that, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than to be a gardener who doesn't know how to use a sword, right? Like that, that's how I sum it up. It's like, you, you may never need to use the sword and, and hopefully you don't, right? We're not advocating going out there and slicing down illusions and delusions and, and cutting people out of your life or anything. But we do want to, you know, that's the psychic uh, uh, inoculation is that you've got to know what's real. You got to know what's going on and you got to know what the adversary is. Like, you know, you got to, that's, that's just, that's it. I don't know how else to say it. It's like better to know how to use a sword and garden and take care of a garden and, and promote beauty, but also have a sword available just in case someone tries to stomp on the garden. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what's missing in our culture. That is one thing, you know, I'm very skeptical of Eastern teachings and philosophies usually. Uh, uh, and I've tried to make why clear in, in various articles and what have you. But the one thing that the Eastern traditions, particularly Zen and Taoism, have brought is this warrior mentality that used to be in the West. You know, it really did. And it's nothing. The, the world, the nature has its own immunity. Right? It casts off the rotten fruit. It has, it has its winter cycle. Living in a one-season world is what our media has created and what people want for themselves, these banalities. And partly it's just programming. You know, the member said you're running from this old trauma. You, you know, our, our upper structures of consciousness, even though we're, we're glad to have them, the ego structures, they're still built out of a dissociation, which is, which is ongoing healing. I'm not asking myself for healing in five minutes. This is going to take history. This is going to take more process. But once you understand the dynamic of ego consciousness, then you don't have big expectations for them. It's a fragile, actually, real good job. One day, you know, should sort of hug yourself and say, hey, ego, thank, thank you very much. For, you know. You've robbed me. This level of consciousness is deep. Deeply problem kind. That's why I'm pessimistic. That's why I'm optimistic about even what I see in the political milieu. In the headlines, what's wrong with that? Even as dark as it is, people are now being forced to study subjects that in the in, the, in that one season halcyon sun is shining. You know they don't care about. It. They go swatting their golf balls and their tennis. 
And, you know, and, and my faulting uh, of America, say, 40, 20, 30 years ago, was that. They were living in the sun. The door to the enemy was wide open, and they didn't have a freaking clue, except the people I learned how to study, you know, like uh, the, the people who inspired me in the early days when I got onto the conspiracy stuff. Uh, my God, did they open my eyes to show all is not well, you know, and, and now every word they've said, almost bar none, has in fact come true. And there's certain scholars even more so, you know, I'd say that there's, you know, certain like British politicians like Enoch Powell, you know, there's a whole list of people I can mention. And they were right. They were 100% right all the way down the line. But uh, we're going to have to do this again and have you even on Enslaved Man, you know, to continue these conversations. I'm so glad to have come across your work. Uh, we definitely want to have you on to extrapolate more of how you, what your, what your goal is, you know, and, and even your bit of your past and uh, what kind of responses you've been getting you know, for your work and, and what vision you have of how to branch it out. We'd certainly be interested because we're actually building on Enslaved soon a set of forums and, and other uh, platforms where we want to include, I mean, actually physically include other people on on Enslaved as members and part, part, part and parcel of it, really. You know, so we could we could talk about that as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that would be a pleasure and an honor. Definitely something I've, I've played with knowing that we would connect at the perfect time. And um, so looking forward to that. And it's just been a, it's been a pleasure and an honor for me to have you, Michael. Um, like I said, I just, I value your work so much. You're one of the main, I probably have like maybe five different, different people, maybe on YouTube or different podcasts that I'll tune into. And uh, you're one of the top, the top people that I, I listen to. That's why I just, I can, I can have this incredible conversation with you and we can go down any kind of rabbit hole. Um, unfortunately, we don't have 10 hours because it would take at least that to really go a lot deeper. But what I really appreciate about this conversation is how, how we could go broad stroke, but also go very deep at the same time. You've mastered the art of communication and articulation of the deeper principles of your work. And I really appreciate you for that. So um, for everybody that's tuning in right now, where can they go? I know unslaved.com um, to, to look at, um, you know, where, where can they go to, um, to see more, more of a body of your work and the things that you offer in your books too. Just go to msar.com or michaeldesarian.com and you'll see the link there for unslaved. But on, on msar.com, you get, you know, access to the articles and uh, books and, and, and a lot of other interesting. Yeah, mostly right now, it's uh, I've got about 14 different websites. So I use the msar.com, you know, and there used to be more. We get we got shadow banned four times, you know. But all in all, there was about 16 sites. I think it's, a, it's less now, but it's still, it's still a lot of sites there. And some of them are really important ones, you know, like the Dragon Mother which is a recent project, just starting that, and uh, Psychic Vampirism. Well, they'll be able to get to all those sites from michaeldesarin.com or msar.com for short, and you'll see the link to Unslave where all of our podcasts are as well. And there's a lot of premium content, which is only for members, which is of the top drawer level, you know, going into very deep, very much deeper into the stuff we're talking about. But then there's other interviews that David and I have done. There's the Path of the Fool. There's a back catalog as well. There's a lot of material, actually, to get into where we – you know, I, I sort of over time bring out these subjects, you know, because they're, they're scattered in all of the different works. It's not like one work that does it all. It's It's been a constant re-looking. I, my work is very much like turning this Rubik's Cube around numerous times, walking around it, looking at the thing from different side lights, as opposed to dogmatically going, well, it's just this and, you know, it's, it's just that. You know, recently we've done a lot of work with Chuck Morse 
on revisioning the whole Jewish aspect of conspiracy. You know, we've really torn that apart, put it back together again. What can we learn? You know, so I'm, I'm one that takes a particular phenomena in this movement and strips it down, you know, and, and looks at its bare bones and then, you know, reconst- reconst- reconstitutes it for another way, like in an article or something like that. and left-wingism, the whole nine yards. So that's what we've been doing. But uh, in that sense, they're just because in fact, most of the ideas that I'm working with there, it was female psychologists who were already talking about it in the past, you know, because I've got that, I've got that uh, thrown in my face, you know, uh, and this is completely disingenuous. None of my work is to belittle anyone or to, you know, uh, you know, cast blame. It's all about responsibility. And most of the, the women that, uh, you know, I'm in touch with all agree about what's happening, you know, with the masculine and feminine dynamics. And those are the only kind of women I want to know. And the more and more that join us, the better it is, because this is a very strong thesis and it's getting a really good response. But uh, there's two articles there and a whole bunch of uh, videos that people can, you know, come up to speed on that. And maybe, you know, we, we can come on and talk about that project in a couple of months because, as I say, we're going to be doing much more on it when other other things get in the way get done. Then I want to talk about uh, Dragon Mother a lot more in the media, you know. Absolutely. It's definitely a fascinating topic, and that, among many others, would love to have you back on anytime you want. And um, just in this moment, thank you so much for joining us. I definitely recommend everybody that stayed along with us here through this journey, definitely go to unslaved.com. Definitely check out Michael's deeper work. That that Unslaved website, the podcast, all the different material, the divination side of things, the tarot reading, like the real, the real authentic tarot divination arts, like that that stuff like opened my mind on a whole nother level. It's still some still still need to go a lot deeper for my own education. So I really appreciate it. I know so many other people will too. And um look forward to having you on again. Thank you very much, Ronnie. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating episode of the Holistic Health and Human Potential show. Before you head off, I want to invite you to go to my website for further podcast episodes and tons of free content on holistic health, natural nutrition, and human potential. Please go to www.ronnylandis.net to find out how to take your health and your life to the next level. And also, I want to encourage you to leave a five-star review for this podcast on our iTunes page, which will help me in my mission to get these inspiring messages to millions of people throughout the world. I thank you so much for your support, and I look forward to continuing to provide amazing conversations and content on holistic health and human potential.